Let's remain standing for the Word of God. This is from the New Living Translation this morning, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Paul the Apostle speaking, he says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And now to finish verses 14 through 17 in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be both our teacher and our comprehending hearts, leading us into all truth as Christ promised you would. We acknowledge that besides you, there is no other means by which we can rest practically and daily in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, so many of us in this room are utterly desperate for that rest. As you already know, speak to us now on behalf of the Father and the Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Based on what Paul is saying in these verses that we've just read, a reasonable theme from which to work might sound like this. That if eternal separation, a reasonable theme from which to work, Don't worry, we've got our cues down, really. (laughs) They're so good, by the way. These guys, just so good. Well, let me just read it. (laughs) A theme for this morning. It's going to be in the notes later. A theme for this morning. If eternal separation from God is our greatest fear, as it must be, then perhaps the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is that he continuously confirms to those in Christ that we are God's children. Let me say that one more time. If eternal separation from God is our greatest fear, as it must be, there's no question there, then perhaps the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is that he continuously confirms to those in Christ that we are God's children. So, how does this theme play out in our everyday Christian lives? And that's the reason I chose this particular lane, but how does it play out practically. Is this an important practical subject to take up when there are so many things that we could discuss in regards to the Holy Spirit and what we believe about Him? Well, I am glad you asked. You know, we could certainly talk about the Holy Spirit being the giver of life, physical life, for example, Jesus Himself. The creed reminds us of that from Scripture. 
We could discuss the Holy Spirit's role in awakening God's chosen people from spiritual deadness to spiritual life, Ephesians 2. We could discuss 2 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 1. We could discuss the Holy Spirit as Erebon in the original language or the pledge or earnest money that God the Father, that's the Holy Spirit, Erebon, the pledge, the earnest money that God puts on his people that then absolutely guarantees that he will redeem them. We could talk about those things because while all those things are true, today we're going to follow Paul's line of thought in Romans that we've just read. And in a heavy, almost lopsided kind of way, we're going to follow how the historical Protestant church, because then that's us at some point. For the sake of practicality, we're going to follow how the historical Protestant church has been challenged and blessed by what Paul has said here, and how the Protestant church in particular, you, us, believers, have been blessed and challenged through the work of the Holy Spirit. So first things first. Secondary though they may be, our feelings, right, in a church world that doesn't really want to talk about feelings too much because that's too subjective. I agree. Sometimes that's out of control. But we don't want to, secondary as they are, we don't want to dismiss feelings, just discount them altogether, particularly if we see that the Word of God allows those feelings to be dealt with. It allows those feelings to be expressed so that they might be dealt with in a godly way. In the opening verses of our text, Paul gives the church, the church then, the church now, an honest assessment of his heart, his contrary heart. On the one hand, he says, I want to do what pleases God. But on the other hand, how can I? With all this sin that still dwells within me, I want the things that I do to be from a pure motive in my heart. That's not happening. It seems the only things really flowing from the motives of my heart are things consistently tainted by sin. He says he actually feels condemned by God. Implicit in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. You don't make that statement if you don't have a sense of how your sinfulness feels condemning. He says he actually feels condemned by God because of his inability and his unwillingness to join together his good intentions and his good doings, his good works. When he desires to do what's good in God's sight, he somehow does the opposite. And when he does do what's right in God's sight, he seems to do it only partially for God's glory because his own selfish motivations are mixed in. We wouldn't know a thing about that. So though Paul's theology of how he is eternally secure in Christ is flawless, the the theology is there, his life lived out often betrays that theology. Professor Michael Reeves commenting on Roman Catholic theology, and this is not to beat up on Roman Catholics, this ultimately does, I'll say, become a human theology, but commenting on Roman Catholic theology, Michael Reeves uh, speaks particularly in Martin Luther's time. He explains this. It'll be a phenomenon to many of us right now when we say that the Roman Catholics actually do believe in salvation by grace. However, like what we see Luther wrestling with earnestly up to and even after his coming to Christ, what he's wrestling with is this. The question is rarely, if ever, whether God gives us grace in Christ. I mean, 
Luther, the Catholics, we, us today, we believe God gives grace in Christ and through Christ. No. The paramount eternity-deciding question implicit in Roman Catholic theology, and this is also borrowed vastly by Protestant Arminian theology, the big question becomes, have I done enough with the grace God has given me? Have I done enough with the grace God has given me? And to be fair, as I said before, that's not just a denominational theology that brings that question about. That's an inherent human theology, and the reason that it's a human theology is because it's driven primarily by a deference to, to, to who? To self, and what we do, and what we're able to do, and what we ought to be doing, and some of that's good, and then it goes overboard because we forget that the deference ultimately is to God and what He has done. And you know, in those moments, it's less of what has God done for me? Okay, that's great. But actually, what have I done for God where I can feel good about what's happening? That sounds intuitively right to us. But the gospel itself is utterly counterintuitive in this regard. Look, the gospel, summarily explained, is the substitutionary life and death of Jesus Christ in our place in order to make us right with God eternally. Why? Because we are entirely, entirely, from start to finish, unable, we are entirely unable to accomplish it ourselves. That's why Jesus has to be the substitute for us. And if that's true, then it is our fundamental obligation as Christians to beat back our so-called reason, important as that can be, when that reason conflicts with the proclamations of God through his gospel. It is always about what God has done for us. And it may never be about, ultimately, what we are doing for God. As we see in what Paul's lamenting over in Romans 7, the answer to the question of whether I've, whether I've done enough with God's grace, to the thinking person, to the introspective person, and more of you live in your heads than are willing to admit, Amen. right? To the thinking person, the answer to the question, have I done enough for God, is always going to be, help me. Uh-uh. No. No, I have not. And when Christ's work, his substitutionary work on our behalf is not properly applied to that equation, Satan will, albeit by God's permission, I am a Calvinist after all, He'll use it to cause our despair. That despair usually looks like this. We can plainly observe in ourselves that what we believe seems to be one thing and how we actually live out that belief, hey Paul, right? How we live it out is often something altogether different. And in our base human nature, if somebody is that way towards us, like we recognize we're that way towards God a lot, right? And if somebody is that way towards us, in our base human nature, we kind of tend to be leery of that person, right? We hold that person at a distance. Because why? Can't trust them. And therefore, we reason to ourselves, since we're like that with you, God, why shouldn't you hold us at a distance? Why should you accept us? We're fair, fair weather <laughs> at best. We're fair weather at best. It doesn't mean there aren't very zealous people for God. 
But as Paul shows us, there is no motive that's pure. You either love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or you do not love him at all. And since we do not do that, we do not love him at all, and that is why the substitutionary life and death of Jesus is crucial. Whatever your feelings about what you think you love about God, they're incomplete. That's the tenor. That's the tenor. The deep soul agony that Paul is speaking in Romans 7, 24. The tenor is, I am the creation and you are the creator. And, and I would say, false as this sensibility may very well be. I feel as though in those moments I am cut off from you. And that's Paul in Romans 7, 24 when he says, hey, how can I ever be set free from myself, from the self that creates a paralyzing, unhealthy fear of God that comes along with constantly deferring to my own performance in order to determine my own eternal outcome? Now, what if we were to do the same kind of honest assessment with ourselves? Well, I'll ask, how many of us here this morning often feel as though we're just going through the motions of the Christian life? Yeah, a few minutes ago. How many of us, no matter how happy we project on the outside, are terribly sad on the inside? And if we could boil everything down to a single common denominator, we would say that ultimately the root cause of our sadness is that we feel so disconnected from God, not so much in our Christian activity, but in our hearts. And just in case you're one of those rare, gifted people who God keeps from being too introspective, living in your head, just know how gifted you really are. Because on the contrary, the whole of Christian history, as we're about to see, just two mere examples, but the whole of Christian history proves to us that these sad, inward-facing, inward-searching sensibilities that occur within God's people are far more common, far more common than what our modern Western culture, PMA, that's positive mental attitude, right? They're far more common than what our smile on our face at church, no matter how sad we really are, mindsets could ever imagine. These lamentings. And yet, if you do feel as though you're often just going through the motions and you're desperately longing for your heart to be lifted up, to be drawn close to God, to be revived, then you're in strong company in the historical church. And as we make the connection to our theme this morning, both Paul and the historical church, particularly the reformers, they understood that ultimately the only way they could ever be lifted up, revived, drawn close to God was for the Holy Spirit of God to, Romans 8, 16, join together with our spirit to affirm. We're talking about eternal assurance here. To affirm that we are, in fact, despite everything, God's children. And to do that, we want the Spirit to do that, particularly while we feel so suffocated by our ongoing sin and affliction. We don't want to just know it in the good times. Let's look now at the wrestlings as well as the subsequent godly, biblical, Christ-centered counsel of Richard Sibbs and William Bridge. These are 16th and 17th century pastors, theologians, 
uh, in the initial throes of the reformation of the church, as they find themselves and their people easily familiarizing with Paul in his spiritual and emotional anguish, as well as the cure, Romans 8, right, as it were, that Paul says the Holy Spirit provides. So here's a question. How does God command us to live as Christians, as his people, throughout Scripture? New Testament as Christians, Old Testament just as his people. Both Richard Sibbs and William Bridge were men of their time. They're concerned deeply with the behavior of those that proclaim Christ as Lord. Christian morality was of the utmost importance, as it has always been and as it should be today. Yet when there was a lack of this morality in themselves or in their people, they tended to trace it to a fundamental cause, if in fact they were reasonably sure that they were dealing with a true Christian. What's that fundamental cause? Unbelief. But wait, how can it be unbelief if these folks are true Christians? More on that in a moment from William Bridge. Richard Sibbs is the one who will start us off this morning when he argues that the Christian simply cannot live his or her life the way God commands it to be lived out if that Christian lacks the assurance of salvation, the thing that Romans 8.16 says the Holy Spirit does for us. The Christian cannot live his or her life the way God commands it if they lack the assurance of their salvation, whether they lack a, fully lack it, they're just not sure ever, or if they lack it for 10 minutes at a time or periods or seasons of their life. Sib says this, God would have us live lives permeated by thankfulness, by cheerfulness, by joy. God would have us live lives permeated with a strong faith and a courageous sense of mission and purpose to tell the world around us about eternal life in Jesus Christ, that most significant thing that could ever happen to any human being. And why should we be the ones to tell them? Because we know daily that eternal life in Jesus Christ is the most significant thing that has ever happened to us. That's why we tell the world. That's our purpose it's the way God wants us to live. But, says Sibs, how can we really? For we can be none of those things unless we're certain that God and Christ are ours for good forever. Indeed, there are many duties, still quoting Sibs, there are many duties God requires which we cannot keep without the assurance of our salvation on good grounds. What are these duties that God requires? Well, again, God bids us to be thankful in all things. But how can I be? unless I know that God and Christ are truly mine. Also, God requires us to rejoice. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice, and I say again, rejoice. But can a man rejoice that his name is written in heaven and at the same time not actually know that it is written there? Alas, how can I perform cheerful service to God when I doubt if he is my God and Father? Yeah, I've never dealt with any of that. 
Furthermore, God requires in us a disposition that we should be full of encouragement, strong in the Lord, and that we should be courageous for His cause in withstanding His enemies and our enemies. But how can there be courage in resisting our corruptions, in resisting Satan's temptations? How can there be courage in suffering persecution and crosses in the world if there is not in my soul, says Sibs, confidence in my standing eternally with God and with Christ. How can there be? And we should note that Sibs was fighting against the prevailing church theology of the time, which essentially taught this. This is huge, because this is, again, an inherent human theology. This is where reason comes in. Sibs is fighting against the prevailing church theology of the time. I'm not anti-reason, just to be clear. If anybody's the logical processor around here, yeah, I take it too far, right? But nevertheless, he's fighting against a theology prevailing at the time that says that you can only be as sure of your salvation eternally as you are sure of your own sinlessness. So your standing with God is as good as the last sin you committed. That's an impossible way to live. It's impossible. We judge ourselves harshly for our failures, and we thus suppose that God, even though we fully believe in Christ, I'm talking to Christians, we're talking to the church here, Paul in Romans 7, talking to the church, people that have already believed. We believe, because of the way we judge ourselves, that God surely judges us the same way. Oh, we know the theology's wrong. That keeps coming up. What if? What if? Back to the idea of have we done enough with the grace God has given us. And Sibs cuts through all this concern. He gives the wisest of Christian pastoral counsel. He says, often you should think with yourself, bear with me in the 17th century language here, often you should think with yourself, what am I? I am a poor, sinful creature, but I have a righteousness in Christ that answers all. And this is one of Sib's most famous uplifting statements. The church has lived on this in addition to the Word of God. Oh, I am weak in myself, but Christ is strong. I am foolish in myself, but I am wise in Him. And what I lack in myself, I have already in Christ. For he is mine, and his righteousness is mine. And being clothed with this, I stand safe against conscience. I stand safe against hell, wrath, and whatsoever. And though I have daily experience of my sins, yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine than there is sin in me. I'll do it. Let's just say the last part. Though I have daily experience of my sins. You with me? (laughs) Anybody going, huh? Yeah. Do I have daily experience of my sins? Yeah, you do. Though I have daily experience of my sins, yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine than there is sin in me. Amen. Amen indeed. William Bridge, he digs even deeper into how all of this affects both us and the historical church, which, by the way, he does this in one of his 13 sermons on Psalm 4211. 13 sermons. It's awesome. 
one verse. That verse says this. The psalmist is asking, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? That's an honest assessment. William Bridge applies this text to the many who feel as though they have lost or could lose their salvation because of their ongoing sin and the ways in which the Holy Spirit works contrary to that to assure us that we really are children of God. He says this, It is a great evil and a sore affliction for a person to lack assurance. For sin and affliction, those things within, those things coming at you without, for sin and affliction are always twisted together in this lack of assurance. A person that lacks the assurance of God's love and his eternal standing in Christ is fit neither to receive mercy from God nor to make return of that love and praise to God as he should. Thus, not fit to receive mercy as he should, even though he really would in his heart have Christ come into him. He wants that. Yet by unbelief, he shuts the door against Christ. And this here is huge. This is huge. When he shuts that door, he makes by his own human judgments an evil interpretation of why God is even offering mercy in the first place. What's the catch? Because every time you offer me mercy, I don't do enough with it. Better if we just don't do that again. So then, how can it be, Bridge asks, how can it be that even with all of this, Christians have no just cause to be discouraged as though they've lost their salvation? I want to pause just for a second. Yeah, I can do this in like six minutes or so. If you're dead in your human birth spiritually, you get that? Right, that's Ephesians 2. You're dead in transgressions already from birth. And you have no ability to come to Christ, specifically to Christ alone, unless God first does the work of giving the life-giving spirit to you where you're able to say, yes, Jesus. If you're dead and have no ability and God starts that work, and we know that if he starts a work, he's going to do what? He's going to finish it, man. He's going to complete that work. Don't you think it could be possible that for all the people in the world who don't care about their eternal standing with God in Christ, they don't care. They don't have that concern. And you do. You have that concern. You have it. It's your deepest fear is being separated from God. Don't you think that's a sign that he's yours? Because you wouldn't think it. If he wasn't working. Now though there may be much unbelief, says William Bridge, such as the lack of assurance. Yet I say the bare lack of assurance is not that unbelief that Jesus says will damn one's soul to all eternity. For if you look at John 3.18, you'll see our Savior speaking thus. He that believes in Christ is not condemned, not condemned. But he that does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Bridge goes on. So, have you already believed in Jesus as the Messiah? 
And do you now acknowledge that you would give anything to believe that he is still yours and you are still his, but you seemingly cannot? Then hear this for your comfort, because in verse 19, Christ goes on to say that the damnation of unbelief is this, that it is those whose deeds are evil and do not want them brought into the light, that light which is Christ himself, because they love their sin more than they love God. Now, therefore, I ask you, says Bridge, do you hate the light? Do you hate Christ? And do you therefore keep from him, lest your deeds should be discovered? Or rather, on the contrary, do you not know that there are evil deeds in your life, and that there is much evil in your heart. And do you not therefore desire to come to Christ who is the true light that your deeds may be confessed and your sin amended? If this is true, then here is your real trouble. You simply cannot believe as you would like. And though you lack assurance of your salvation, and though you have much unbelief in you, the Lord Christ has spoken it. He has spoken that you will never be condemned for this lack to all eternity. But the Lord Christ will pardon you for this and all of the sin and affliction that has led you to fall into such a state. Guys, is there any mystery as to why I spend most of my time reading these old writers? Honestly, put the new guys away from time to time. Balance your education with heavy doses of people who, frankly, don't have the distraction of television in their lives. Not disparaging. I like a lot of the new guys. Careful that we don't balance. And so let me ask you, Wildwood, as we begin to conclude here. Is the Holy Spirit not at work right now? Even in these centuries-old gospel messages, in what Paul is saying in Scripture, is he not at work right now? That's for you to answer, not as a rousing amen, but somewhere introspectively in your own heart, is he at work? In Romans 7, as we conclude, Paul is deeply troubled, uh, troubled in his soul. In Romans 8, he has, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, concluded for himself and for those of us who are in Christ that all the comfort and assurance he possesses the fact that God and Christ are still his, even though he's a wretched sinner. All those things are his only by way of the Holy Spirit. All his willingness and ability to go forward in genuine thankfulness, in genuine cheerfulness, joy, and courage for the cause of God in Christ. What keeps him, on the contrary, from feeling as though he's just going through the motions of a heartless Christianity, all of this owes to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who in reminding him through the word of God, through prayer, through the church, who is the body and representative of Christ, that the Holy Spirit absolutely, Romans 8, 16, absolutely assures him, Paul, and us today of these things. That we may never be condemned once we're found by Christ. That even though we have the power through the Holy Spirit not to become slaves to our sin, that even when we do become slaves to it, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God when that love of God is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in this assurance of our salvation, even in the midst of our sin, which we desperately long to be rid of, 
in this assurance, we finally have, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what we need. I prayed for you a lot that you would today have what you need from the Holy Spirit to live as God requires that we live. It's not a suggestion. This is what he wants, that you live with hearts of thankfulness, that you live with hearts of cheerfulness and joy. So many of us are just angry old codgers. I don't love it about myself. What is wrong with me? That we uh, live with hearts of courage made strong by God's Holy Spirit in order to advance the kingdom of God on the earth. To you, to you, to you online, who have been in darkness for so long. Man, I counsel so many people from this church, from around this city, and I know my own things about me. There are people living in darkness, in darkness. And they want out. My sin, doesn't that mean, doesn't my sin mean that I have to keep Christ out until I get it better, until I've done enough with his grace? That kind of darkness. You want out. You want the light to come in and flood that. So to you who have been in darkness for so long, I say this, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, come out. Come out. Come out and live your life in ways you never imagined. And all for God's glory, even when by your own sinfulness, your own glory and the desire for it gets in the way. And why? Well, because we do indeed believe in the Holy Spirit.